Well, uh, this might be news for, for Stephanie, my secretary, and hopefully she's taking notes. But today and next Sunday, we will continue to explore a word that some might call the E word. Uh, today's message is a little long uh, to be able to do one Sunday. So we're going to do two Sundays on this, just a, a part two of all of this. But the E word is what we've been talking about, evangelism and sharing your faith, witnessing. That becomes usually just the E word. We don't want anything to do with it because it's kind of scary. And, uh, and for many reasons, some Christians almost never share their faith. Uh, and maybe, maybe they think they don't have opportunities. Uh, they haven't had a uh, situation to do that. Maybe they think that they're not good enough to do that, or they don't have the, the, the ability or the giftedness to do that. And i got to remind you that evangelism isn't really a gift. It's more of a command. We need to be out there, and we need to be ready to share our faith with other people around us. But uh, that ev evangelism, that E word, becomes pretty uncomfortable with a lot of people. Um, so we'll continue to talk about sharing our faith in ways that hopefully won't lead to this discomfort or, or guilt, but again, leads to encouragement and as well as empowerment. And I trust you are realizing through this series that we've had so far that evangel evangelism doesn't need to be just the E word in your life anymore. It becomes a lifestyle. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I know it says uh, Acts 17, we're going to get there, don't worry. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes these words. He says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. I remember taking a, a trip up to Seattle with Anthony, um, our oldest son. And he, uh, he and I were going to a Mariners game. And uh, it just so happens the Yankees were playing the Mariners. I told you I had something to tell you. And uh, <laughs> Julie's probably going to go, oh, great, we're not coming here now. But you see a Yankee fan in front of you. And, and these days are not that great for Yankees fans. <laughs> it's a little, a, little, uh, a little perilous right now going on with the things going on uh, at the end of the season. But anyway, we were up in Seattle to see the Yankees play uh, the Mariners. And, and as we walked over to the stadium, there was a bunch of people coming on over. And as we were walking on over, I noticed on the corner this guy that was just blaring from a from a, a, a kind of like a megaphone type of thing, and he was yelling at people about something. When we got closer to it, I could understand this was a street preacher. He was trying to express the goodness to people, but it didn't sound very good. <laughs> You're going to hell, you repent now, you're stuck in your sins. And he was just coming down on them. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, he, was, he just had this in-your-face type of, type of uh, style, almost rude. And to me, you know, the peacemaker, I'm going, oh, and I almost wanted to pray for them. And, or maybe go over to them and say, I'm sorry for this guy. He's really loud and obnoxious. Really, Jesus is a good guy. He's a good Savior. And so I felt really bad about what was going on over there. I don't know if I would use that kind of style myself. But the results of a, of a nationwide survey was reported in a book entitled The Day America Told the Truth, written by James Patterson and Peter Kim. It says, people, excuse me, it says people were asked to rank 73 different professions for their honesty and integrity. 
Guess what profession was third from the bottom? TV evangelists. TV evangelists came out below lawyers, politicians, car salesmen, and even prostitutes. Only two occupations came out lower, organized crime bosses and drug dealers. <laughs> TV evangelists. Unfortunately, the word evangelist often conjures up images of TV preachers doing jail time for conning followers out of their life savings. If not that, it makes us picture circus-style tent revivals or street preachers like the one I saw outside of Safeco Field, which is T-Mobile Park, by the way. And one of the greatest barriers to people sharing their faith is a characterization of evangelism as being hypocritical, if not misleading. But since ev evangel means, simply means good news, the word evangelist should make us picture someone who has something positive to share is good news. Negative thinking about evangelism is, is a tragedy for the church, but it's an even bigger tragedy for, for the lost people who uh, need to hear this good news. So what can be done? What can we do? Maybe the first thing to realize is that the common stereotypes of evangelists are not accurate. Rethink that. Among Christians, uh, there should be as many kinds of evangelists as there are types of personalities. Bill Hybels put it this way in his book. He said, God has custom designed each of us with unique personalities, temperaments, talents, and backgrounds which God can harness and use in his mission to reach a messed up world. So when you share your faith, you can be yourself. You don't have to be someone else. You don't have to be the Billy Graham. You be yourself. If you are an introvert, you don't have to become an extrovert. If you are fun-loving, you don't have to become serious and scholarly. If you are a new Christian, you don't have to wait until you have been a Christian for 30 years and gone to Bible college. You don't have to fit into someone else's mold in order to uh, evangelize. There are people around you who need to hear the good news from someone just like you. Someone who God has done a magnificent work in, and you just need to express that in your way. Some people would never be converted by a street preacher. If that guy outside of Safeco Field handed me his bullhorn and told, told me to take over while he took a break, I, I wouldn't have been able to share my faith in the way he was doing it. It would have been a little awkward. God, God made me different than that person, different personality, different temperaments, different talents backgrounds like each one of you. I wouldn't say that his style was wrong. Don't get me wrong on this, because you know, some people need to hear that. They need to be uh, uh, confronted with that kind of style and, of course, the message. But God, again, very, may very well use a street preacher like, like that person to reach them. So today, and of course next Sunday as well, we're going to look at Six biblical examples of evangelism styles. We're going to do three today, and then we'll, we'll save three for next Sunday. Uh, and this is all highlighted in Bill Heibel's book, Becoming a, Conta a Contagious Christian. I think we need to be contagious as Christians. And like the sign out there uh, that uh, Stephanie placed on uh, the reader board there, 
um, the message saying, you, know, are you, <laughs> you need to be contagious. Christian, are you worth <laughs> being, are you worth being uh, contagious? You know, are people needed to catch your, 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 your type of uh, message? So we need to make sure that if we're contagious as a Christian, that they see God's love, that they hear a message that's clear about God's love, but also, too, one that meets right where they're at. So I'll share three of those today again and three more next Sunday. And maybe among those styles, you might find your fit. You might find out where you, you, you find a good spot where maybe one of these styles might work for you. So today, we're, we're, we'll look at three unique individuals who represent three evangelistic styles, Peter, Paul, and a guy born blind, and not Mary. <laughs> I think someone was thinking of someone else. Not the singing group, okay? Uh, yeah. So, let's look at the first one. I thought I'd catch Arlen in that one. Let's look at the first one and uh, at Paul. The Apostle Paul represents what could be called the intellectual style of evangelism. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Paul was kind of a person that was prepared to give an answer. He, he would do that. He was well suited for this style of evangelism. And for one thing, again, he was highly educated. In fact, he was, a, was personally tutored by Gamaliel, who was one of the top rabbis of his day. And Paul's hometown of Tarsus was a bustling trade center and a hub for for Greek philosophy. So he wouldn't miss out on that at all. He would learn a lot. And in our day, Paul might be like someone who grew up in Boston and earned a PhD from Harvard. And so he was in the area of intellectualism, learning a lot of, of, of things. Paul was not only intelligent, he was analytical by nature. He was a master at logic, and you, would, you wouldn't want to come up against him in a debate. He would, he would take you to, to task on that. But Acts chapter 17, as you probably are there right now, if you not get there in Acts chapter 17, gives a prime example of Paul's intellectual style. The Areopagus there in Athens was a place where Paul described the new philosophy that he was teaching to the, to the intellectual elites of that day. And when you read his presentation, you can't help but see how Paul uh, how he adapted uh, to all that was around him. He, he fitted the evangelism to his audience, the, the, the style to his audience. He started by appealing to their pride in their city and culture in verses uh, 22 and 23 of Acts 17. He said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Wow, what a hook. Letting them know that this thing you've been worshiping, unknown? I know who he is. <laughs> then Paul went on to tell them about the, the one true God in the kind of philosophical terms that would, would appeal to, the, to, the, to his audience, to those people there. He even quoted one of their own poets as well as he continued on with the message. And once Paul had these philosophers with him, he, 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 he took them to the heart of the gospel message in verses uh, 29 through 31. 
of Acts 17. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the, wor the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. What better spokesman could God have sent to this place in Athens? Paul presented an intellectual argument, starting from the, an Athenian idol to an unknown God and, and moving all the way to the only true God and the resurrected Messiah. His approach was so effective that some assembled there actually became believers. Now today, this is uh, practiced by apologists and other logical thinkers. The intellectual evangelist is challenged to have an excellent knowledge and understanding of the gospel because intellectual roadblocks can be pretty significant barriers to belief. People might come up with questions. Do you have the answers for those? A lot of times when people might ask me, I'll go, that's a great question. Could I get back to you on that one? And then try to get back to presenting the gospel in some way. Sometimes those are smoke screens that you need to consider. But if you're going to set aside their question for a moment, be sure you do get back to it. Uh, even if it is like, I need to look this up and I'll come back and, and let you know uh, the answer I found. But these roadblocks can, can include questions and objections that cause doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity. For that person, they need to hear more intellectual stuff going on. This style of evangelism is uh, becoming more important in today's world. Uh, Bill Heibel says, uh, this style of evangelism has become more and more important as our society has become increasingly secular. So many seekers need to hear the gospel not only declared, but also defined and defended. So thankful for those who have done that these days. And those who seem to, li to, to like this style of evangelism need to be careful not to substitute giving answers for sharing the gospel message. So in the example of someone asking the question while you're trying to share the gospel with them, you could get sidetracked down a rabbit trail and start talking about all these other things that you know instead of sharing from your heart what God has done. Be careful not to get in the head too much about these things because that might take you uh, on a, a trail that would lead you away from what you're supposed to be doing, sharing the gospel with this person. But uh, there's also a tendency and temptation to become argumentative. We want to argue and debate and, and, and let them know, this is right, this is true, it's from God's word, and, and not let go. Sometimes that can be detrimental. We might win the battle, but uh, we'll lose the war as far as being able to win that person to the Lord. Learn to be a good listener and try to understand their reasoning and ideas if this style of evangelism sounds pretty good to you. Some uh, current examples of the intellectual style of evangelism might be men like Josh McDowell, uh, D. James Kennedy, R.C. Sproul, uh, Lee Strobel also too. Uh, he was an atheist and came to Christ through his wife's change of life transformation through the Christian faith. He had many doubts about the faith, but once he claimed a relationship with God through faith in Christ, he started to see how the Christian worldview made sense. 
And now he writes and speaks about how a relationship with Jesus has changed his life in an incredible way and shares that with others so they can have a life-changing experience too. Coming closer to home here, uh, there are men and women in our church who are drawn to this style of evangelism. And maybe you might be thinking of some that might be able to fit in that mode as well, too. For me, I think of Mike Grimm. I think of Mike Grimm, who is one who's like, you know, the intellectual stuff. He likes to dig into that and be able to give a reason why. And, and I, I appreciate how he does that. In, in the in Sunday school classes, he digs into that, too, and, and gives presentation of, of how, how the scripture is. People like that that like to stand up and stand strong and ready to uh, give a reason and, and be uh, equipped with that. I think that's, that's amazing. And uh, I think, uh, uh, again, Mike, you come to mind when I think about that. But maybe the, the, the intellectual approach is one that might fit you. You might find it interesting yourself. Do you like working with ideas and evidence? Uh, are you logical and, and, and fact-oriented? This style of evangelizing is very much needed in our increasingly secularized, uh, secularized society, as Bill Hybels has told us. And many need to hear the gospel not only declared, but defended and defined in intellectual terms. People need to hear that. And God, are, God is raising up people to be able to do that. Are you one of them that might feel like this style of evangelism might fit you? Paul was a great example of, of this kind of style of evangelism, the intellectual style. But another guy, Peter, gives a prime example of this next style of evangelism that I want to share with you called the confrontational style or direct approach. Now, if you know anything about Peter, uh, this probably, uh, you agree with this pretty well as, too. Uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 2, you can write this down and look it up later, but it says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, from watching Peter in action, we know that he was a straightforward kind of guy. Peter was not, only, not one for mincing words or wasting time. He was, he was bold, he was direct, he was right to the point. His verbal style sometimes came across like, ready, fire, aim. <laughs> you get these things a little backwards a bit. But as Peter matured in Christ, he hit the target more often than not. Is it any wonder that God chose Peter to preach the very first gospel sermon? Look with me in Acts chapter 2, you'll see that. A couple chapters back from where we were. It was the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2. Peter and the other apostles were surrounded by crowds of worshipers. And when Peter stepped forward and started preaching, he was, in fact, the, the original street preacher. <laughs> but, of course, he did it without a megaphone. But he told them who Jesus was. Then he pointed the finger straight at them and he declared, You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We see that in verse 23. That is about as confrontational and direct as you can get. <laughs> He was accusing them of murder, and they knew they were guilty. Many of the, the people listening to Peter had been in that crowd a few weeks before. And they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. The scripture says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when the, when the people heard this, what, what, what Peter said, 
They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And true to form, Peter told them what they could do <laughs> in no uncertain terms. In verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 of them did exactly what he told them to do. Peter's confrontational and direct style was, was exactly what they needed to hear. And if this style of evangelism seems to suit you, be sure to use tact when confronting people with the truth. Sometimes we can be a bull in a china shop. We have the truth. We're coming through. Doesn't care about the carnage behind us. They heard the truth. Yeah, it kind of does matter. <laughs> it does kind of matter. Be on guard not to offend, um, but, you know, if they're offended anyway, you can't help that. That's fine. But as it, as it uh, depends upon you, <laughs> make sure that that doesn't happen. And remember to, again, uh, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. Patience is a key in this, and be able to come alongside someone. Those who use this style of evangelism get straight to the point. They preach Christ, and they seek a response. Jesus loves you. You're a sinner. You need to have Jesus in your life. What are you going to do? <laughs> and they're waiting for a response. Give it. Bring it. I'm waiting. Time's wasting. And, 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 and as they stand there and wait, um, they, want, they, they earnestly want that person to come to know Christ. But they, they preach Christ, and they seek a response. The issue isn't forced but the person with this approach directs the conversation to a discussion on faith. It might be some kind of meeting or coffee time, and then all of a sudden the conversation kind of goes more towards spiritual things. And how are you doing? How's your prayer life? Have you prayed lately? Oh, when was the last time maybe you've gone to church? And so the conversation all of a sudden kind of curves more towards their spiritual life. How does that happen? How do you do that type of thing? I, I find it amazing uh, people are able to do that, that type of stuff. In, in Becoming a Contagious Christian, that, that book, the direct approach is described as redirecting conversations to Christ. <laughs> and that's the skill that is done in that style of evangelism. When we think of confrontational evangelists, we might think of people like maybe Chuck Colson, uh, Greg Laurie, he's a, a preacher, uh, Billy Graham, of course, and now Franklin Graham. But these are people who present the gospel without frills and then challenge their hearers to respond right then and there. So they, they, they present it, ask the question, and they wait. What are you going to do? <laughs> and I tried to think of someone in our church who fits the confrontational style, the direct approach, the ones who came to my mind. First off, Dale Oviatt. Those of you who knew Dale Oviatt, he, he passed away um, a number of years ago. But, man, he was the type of person that could take a conversation and redirect it into a way that people would go, yeah, I... I haven't thought about that. I think I need to get back to church, or I think I need a Savior. It, 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 he just had the knack of being able to do that type of thing. I think of Neil LaRocco. <laughs> Very direct, uh, coming right at you with, you know, no holds barred. He, he, you know, what are you going to do? This is the truth. You're not doing it. Why not? <laughs> it's just, and his kind of style and nature. I think Neil kind of fits this. And, and, and I think also, too, and maybe she doesn't think so myself, maybe her sister does, but Chris Thiessen is the one who can be direct and one who can say, these, these are the facts. 
So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, and help you understand those things. Um, these people I am so thankful for because they are able to, again, redirect that conversation to a way that brings it to God and brings it into a way of, of a spiritual uh, concept as well. Uh, and again, being direct and to the point and assertive, uh, that, that's great. Some people are just waiting for a bold, straightforward Christian who won't beat around the bush. Tell me like it is. What do I need to do? Could that Christian be you? Could you be that type? Is your style telling uh, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Do you get impatient with small talk and niceties? Just let's get to the point and make sure that we, we, we spend uh, time wisely here. Let God mold and use your personality so that you can be effective even when you need to be confrontational and direct. There's a balance. Don't be that bull in a china shop. Make sure you come along with that patience. And then the last style we're going to look at this morning is the testimonial style of evangelism. Testimonial style of evangelism. This style simply means that you tell what Jesus has done for you. Very simple. It seems to me that the testimonial style fits everyone. Anyone can do this. All of us have a testimony to give because Jesus has made a big difference in all of our lives. Some of us, though, may be better at telling the story of our own salvation than others. Or we may have an especially effective story to tell because Jesus has done something pretty dramatic in our lives. The Gospel of John gives a good example of someone who used the testimonial uh, style of evangelism. You can find it in John chapter 9. And some of you might be encouraged by this particular example because the man born blind didn't need to know much about Jesus in order to be a successful evangelist. <laughs> he just needed to tell what Jesus did for him. That's all. We don't know as much about this blind man as we do about Paul and Peter, but we do know that Jesus healed this guy. And here's how it happened in John chapter 9. Jesus announced to the crowds, I am the light of the world. And then as if to prove his point, he turned to the man who had been born blind. And in verse 7, uh, Jesus spit on the ground to make, make some mud. He rubbed the mud on the man's eyes and then said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. Now you might think everyone would celebrate with the man. <laughs> But you would be wrong. The Jewish leaders were pretty, pretty enraged by all the attention Jesus was getting from this amazing miracle. They cornered the man and ordered him to stop telling people what Jesus had done for him. Stop saying that. Uh, John chapter 9, verse 24. He said, give glory to God. They said, we know this man is a sinner. And if you look at the simplicity of the man's testimony in, in verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's it. This man was not prepared for a theological argument. He didn't want to get into something like that. An intellectual response didn't fit his style. Neither was he one to confront like Peter did. But if you read the rest of John chapter 9, you'll see that his short and simple testimony was so effective, it drove the Jewish leaders crazy. 
It's hard to argue with someone who has been transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. No one can deny your personal story. Storytelling describes this style in the most effective way. It really is. It's storytelling. Storytelling has been an effective method of teaching since the beginning of humanity. And this style uses a, a very natural, conversational way to evangelize. It's sharing your story. Sharing personal stories of your own walk with Christ, it often carries unique weight. You are a living, walking testimony. And they see it. And they notice it. It's not something on paper or what they read in a book. And they often do things that, you know, that facts alone cannot provide. This type of testimony does things uh, facts cannot, alone cannot provide. Many people might not respond to a challenge or an argument about faith. They might get turned off about that. In fact, when approached in, in those ways, they might put up a wall. Nope, here he comes. Going to come beat me over the head with the Bible again, or he's going to try to confront me with what I'm doing in my life. I can't believe it. And, and so the wall gets built up. They might respond to something more personal to which they might relate. Our stories don't have to be dramatic or miraculous. It just has to be our story. <laughs> it could be as simple as sharing how you changed from being a religious person who attended church regularly to one who now has a deeper relationship with Christ. What has God done for you? What is God doing for you? Might be a better question because people want to hear what is happening now. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We proclaim to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So tell others. Tell others what you have seen and heard. The temptation here, those to avoid, uh, temptation to avoid here is this, uh, to, to focus on, on yourself and all your problems. Oh, I had a horrible life and this is what I did and oh, I did all these things and I was so messed up and everything else. But Jesus saved me. <laughs> That's not, whoa, whoa, wait, what's the emphasis here? Uh, so the temptation is to emphasize yourself in this and, and all the things that you went through and all that, the horrible stuff. What we need to make sure that is that we talk about Jesus and what he's done. Bring glory to him, not yourself. And some people you might think of that would fit this style of evangelism might be Corey Ten Boom, maybe Johnny uh, Erickson Tata. Right now, though, this, this room here and those online, I'm sure, are filled with people uh, with testimonies of how Jesus has transformed their lives. Uh, has Jesus made a difference in your life? Do you have a testimony to share? It doesn't have to be a dramatic story. There are people who live and work around you who need to hear about the difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. Do you feel comfortable like the man born blind and telling others how God has changed your life? It's just simply telling your story. Your story can be very powerful, though, as a tool of evangelism. Don't, don't forsake that. You don't have to have some kind of flamboyant style. You just have to have a story to be able to tell it to others. I want to bring this message to a close here by listening to a testimony from someone who is near and dear to Becky and I. And as well as you guys too, I'm sure. Hers is a story of significant spiritual growth through a period of significant difficult situations. And maybe her testimony might encourage and challenge you. 
That's that. I'd like to ask my daughter, Brianna, to come on up and share. I wasn't nervous at first, but I kind of am now. So. <laughs> okay, so also these are super pretty. I really like these, whoever did that. Um, I'm just going to be talking a little bit about like what I'm learning now. I feel like my dad asked me, oh, can you like share your testimony? Because I've had an awesome last few months. And I was like, okay, but like, I'm still in it. Like, I'm not done. Like, I'm not done learning and I'm still learning so much. But like, I feel like I've thought about testimony as like, this happened. It was super bad. This is what God did. Like now I'm over here and it was, it was awful, but I'm good now. Like, I'm not good yet, but I'm learning so much. And that's where that foundation comes from. Anyway, um, so the past few months, I've been able to deal with a lot of difficult people and understand like how to maneuver relationships and everything like that. And I'm going into my senior year. I'm in my senior year right now, so I have a lot of life to live, but I am learning a lot right now. So just to start out with that, I've something I've learned and has been super foundational in like my relationship with God lately is there are a lot of true things about me, but there is something that is the truest. And so, like, I was talking to my mom about this, like, there's a lot of true things about, like, I am a girl, I am 17, I work at Dutch Bros, I like to play soccer. Like, those things are all super true, but what is truer about my identity is that I am a child of God, I have been created in his image, and I am created for a purpose. And all those things are true about me, but the truest thing that doesn't change and never will is that my identity lies in who God has made me to be. I think that that's something I've just really been able to lean into lately because there's a lot of true things. There's a lot of truth in that I'm dealing with these difficult people. There's a lot of truth and I'm like, oh, I feel this tension. Like, yes, th those things are true, but what is truer? And I think that that has just been something really cool that I've been able to lean into. Um, something else is that no matter what is happening, no matter if you feel God working, no matter if you see God working, he is because that is who he said he is. And like, that's something I just really have had to just like super lean into lately because it doesn't matter if I see it, doesn't matter if I feel it, doesn't matter if I want to see it or not. Like he has said, I am doing this and I trust that. And that's the bottom line. And like there is nothing more than that and there is nothing like less. It is just that God has said he is, so he is. And I think that that is something I have just really valued and like having to deal with things that are hard and having to deal with things that are super fun, like nothing changes about God. And when I was putting in, like I was putting my foundation of who I was and what I was like trusting in and where my hope was lying and things that were so inconsistent and I had to learn that the only thing I can put my hope in is what is consistent and the only thing that's consistent in my life is God. And that doesn't change. And he doesn't change. No matter how much I'm learning and growing and moving and how much I'm changing, God doesn't change. And when I try to put my foundation and who I want to be into things that are changing, I'm not going to be stable. And I wasn't. And when I, I had something I was really putting my hope and trust in and like pouring energy into, and when that got taken away from me, I was nothing. I was, I had nothing to rest on. I had no foundation to be stable on. And that was just a really big switch for me just a few months ago, just realizing, okay, if I want to be stable, if I want my life to be able to be consistent, I have to 
put my trust in what is consistent, and that only thing is God. And that's been a really valuable lesson for me. And in that, I, I feel like most of the things I'm going to say and that I'm saying, you probably heard, you probably know, but like I'm relearning them as much as I heard them when I was younger and heard them a lot like growing up. I, they were only made true for me when I experienced them for myself. And I think that that's really tough because like I know I, as like my mom and dad like have been pouring so much into me and like they love me so much and have been telling me these things my entire life, but they didn't become true until I learned them for myself. And although though I knew them in the back of my head, like I had to experience those things in order to grow into them. And I think that that's something else I'm really learning. Um, but God can't be a part of your life. He has to be your whole life. Everything else fits around God. God doesn't fit around everything else. And that has been really tough because there's a lot of important things in my life and there's a lot of good things in my life. And my mom has always talked to me about this, like there's good, there's better, and there's best. And like, there's a lot of good things in my life, there's a lot of great things in my life, but what was best for me was to have God be all of it and to be able to fit the little things in around him, I guess. Um, I just started doing cross country and my family, like super big runner family, right? Everyone always makes fun of us like, why do you like running? Like, I don't know, but I love it. And I've been able to do um, some cross country meets and stuff like that. It's been super great. And I think the biggest reason that I enjoy it is because it's such a beautiful outlet for me to be able to have my prayer time with God. And that like going out on runs and stuff like that is just like soothing. And I can like talk to God and really meditate on what I'm learning and what I'm struggling with and everything like that. But something that that aspect is taken away from me when I race. So when I'm racing, I like keep my head down. I'm like running really hard. And in my head, I'm like, this hurts. I want it to be done faster. So I run faster. You know, it's like, it's, it's just that, that makes sense, right? Like you keep your head down, you run really hard because then you can be done with it sooner. And I was racing a few weeks ago and I like, that was what was happening. I just kept my head down. I ran really hard and I, it really hurt. And then at the end I was like, oh, it's done. Whew, like it doesn't hurt anymore. But I then went for my cool down lap. I was just like going for a cool down and I brought my head up and it was like a beautiful sunny day, like blue skies, beautiful clouds, like the greenery was everywhere. There was beautiful flowers. And I was like, I missed all of this because I was keeping my head down because it hurt. But like when I go for my cool down and I look up, how much I missed because I was so focused on just getting done was, it's tragic. And that was just so, such a beautiful comparison to my life. And like, I'm going through something sucky right now, right? And so I'm just gonna keep my head down and I'm gonna like, just wait for it to be over. But all the things that I'm missing, all the beauty that God is showing me, even in the hurt, is something I can't surpass. I can't miss that. Because when I went for my cool down, I was like, I went around this track like three times and I missed all of this and I only saw it when I was done focusing on the hurt. And that has just been so influential for me, I guess, and like relating that back to my life and making sure that I'm keeping my head up even when it feels like it'd be easier, just keep my head down, trudge through, make sure it's done quicker. Like, yeah, it hurts, but it's so much easier when you look up and you see like all the beauty that's around you and all the things that God is doing in my life right now, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if I don't see it, I trust it because I know that's who he says he is. And that's just been, it's really good. And reminds me, 
to the story of Joseph and how um, my mom and I have talked a lot about this actually. And like, there was, he was just getting beaten down every two seconds, just bam, another thing, bam, another thing. And he wasn't like really doing anything wrong. He was just like living his life, trying to do the best he could and like make the most out of it. And he just kept getting beaten down and beaten down. And like, he didn't know the end of his story at that moment. We do, we get to see like, oh yeah, that sucks, that sucks. And then happy ending, like, yay. But like, in it right now, we don't get to see in like our own lives the happy ending yet. We don't get to see all the great, amazing ways that God's working through our hard story. But that's that story is such a beautiful reflection of like trusting God even when it doesn't feel like it. Because, and like I was talking to my dad about this, I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like, what is it that I am doing to like put these things and he was like you're not it's not something you do it's just life it's just how life works like these things happen and like I just can't even imagine Joseph in that moment was like what am I doing wrong like I swear I'm like doing all the right things and I get to the highest level and then I just get thrown back in prison and I get to the highest level and I just get thrown back like it's not necessarily something like oh you're doing something so wrong it's just life but if we can stop and pick our head up and trust that God knows what he's doing, and rest in that, I don't know, it's just, it's not easier, but it's a lot more fulfilling. (laughs) And then another thing that I really have been learning all through with this, and I feel like Joseph was probably learning this too, is just patience. And if you feel like you're done learning patience, you're not, because that's impatient of you to think that. So I'm like, I was like, that's something my sister, I was like, I feel like I am, have been learning patience over and over again. Like I get it. And she was like, you're impatient to learn patience. She's like, you're not done. I was like, you're right. Okay. Well, I think that, I don't know. I've just been learning a lot about what patience looks like and how Jesus was able to show that on the cross, like dad was talking about. And just everything about his life was like, him being patient to be called back home and how how can I not have patience in like this little season of life when like I'm called to be like Jesus and he had that type of patience it's just it's interesting and um I was listening I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately too and something Kyle Eidelman is someone I've really enjoyed listening to and he said the evidence of patience in our lives is the space that we make for people that we disagree with and that, like, I remember I was listening to the podcast, I, like, paused it, and I, like, said it out loud a bunch of times. I was like, I have to remember this, I have to remember this, because when we are dealing with difficult people, when we are trying to understand them, or we're trying to get them to understand us, like, it talks about in Ephesians 4 about we are called to always be humble and gentle, and, like, we are not going to be humble and gentle if we are trying to pull this person along with us, or trying to push them this way, or, like, We are called to be humble and gentle, and in that is patience. And the evidence of patience in our life is the space that we're making for those people that we want to push and pull and want to understand and want them to understand us. Like, we will not be humble and gentle if we don't have patience in that space for people. And, like, that was just really eye-opening for me. And, like, okay, the Bible says always be humble and gentle. That means that is not an exception for this person that I feel like deserves the exception. It's not an exception. It doesn't matter. They also deserve the same amount of humility from me and patience from me and gentleness from me because God loves them just as much. 
And that's what I'm also called to do. And I think that that is really hard and I haven't mastered that yet, but I'm learning it. <laughs> and kind of to go along with that too, I'm almost done. Um, kind of go along with that too was just like talking about forgiveness and talking about reconciliation and something that's been really just like I've been able to rest in is when we're dealing with those difficult people, trying to make space for them in our lives, trying to be humble and gentle, Forgiveness is not reconciliation because forgiveness is on us. I, it is my job to forgive that person, whether or not they like it, whether or not they want it, like forgiveness is on me, but reconciliation goes both ways. And I, it, as far as it depends on me, I will live at peace with everyone, but I can reach out this far and someone else has to reach out the same amount in order to reconcile. And I think that that distinction was really important for me to learn and like, just because I forgive someone doesn't mean that they're gonna all of a sudden turn around and be like, oh my gosh, I forgive you too. Like we're besties again. Like that's not how it works. <laughs> and so understanding that like when I'm able to forgive that person, that burden can be lifted, but that reconciliation doesn't necessarily come because it comes both ways. And as much as I want that reconciliation, as much as I pray and hope that that will come, it's not all up to me. And just, kind of releasing that into I forgive and I hope that they can reconcile, but if they can't, I have done my part. And that's just like very freeing for me. Just talking about like creating those foundations and creating those, um, like making God all of it and not just a little part of it. Um, if you create a foundation on something on, of your life, on something that's unstable, you will be unstable. Root yourself in consistency. And it's the, only, it's the only thing that will be consistent is God. And even if it feels like those things are good and like these things are good enough to be a good foundation for a little bit, like good, better, best. And like there's good things, there's even better things, but there are the best things. And so just to kind of wrap up a little bit, um, Psalm 23 was another podcast I was listening to actually. And he was talking about Psalm 23 and he was talking about how... Um, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I've never really understood that. <laughs> I was always like, why? Like, just to, like, show off? Like, just to, like, shove it in their face? Like, I don't understand, like, why are we sitting in front of my enemies? But this podcast talked about, so you are sitting at the table and God is sitting at the table, and he invites your enemies to come next to you, and it's on you whether you pay attention to them or not. Because God is sitting across that table and you can lock eyes with him and you can have a conversation with him and you can focus all your energy on him or you can get distracted by the enemies that are going to be there no matter what. And I think that that was really interesting. Like, they're gonna be there. The people that feel like they're out to get you are gonna be there. It's on our relationship with God and on us whether we look at them or not. Because we don't have to look at them. We don't have to get in quarrels and fights and arguments with them. We don't have to try to sway them one way or another. It's our job to have a relationship with God and focus our eyes across the table on him and not look at the enemies that are around us because they're going to be there. That's just inevitable. And I think that that was just really eye-opening for me. And like, it's, and I think it's in John, maybe first John, it talks about like in your, in this world, there will be troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Like there's pretty much a guarantee there's going to be hard stuff. Like that's not, that's not negotiable, but it's up to you whether you choose to 
lock your eyes on God or not. I think that was really eye-opening for me. And just understanding that life isn't about what we deserve. Because if it was, we would all be dead probably. <laughs> and like, and it's like, that's, and that's what helps me to be able to forgive and be able to want that reconciliation with the people I feel like have hurt me because I forgive not because it's what they deserve, not because it's, I feel like, oh yeah, they'd earned this. Like nothing is ever about that because we can earn the salvation. We couldn't earn Jesus dying on the cross. He just did. And that's what he calls us to do is take up our own cross and like, yeah, it's just life isn't about what people deserve. Because if it was, I would be screwed. <laughs> and so it can't be because God has given me that grace and that mercy. But yeah. Thank you. There are uh, a lot of lessons that Bree is going through. And you can hear that God is, is speaking to her and working in her life. And that basically is all that needs to happen. Storytelling. What has God done for you. I'm going to ask uh, Annie and Don, come on up, Ron as well. I'm going to share in a couple songs here. And again, if you feel maybe today that uh, you found maybe a, a certain type of style that might work for you in evangelism, then great. If not, we've got next Sunday. You can come and, and figure some things out there. But the main thing, if anything, the main thing is be ready to be used by God whatever style you feel suits you. And testimonial style seems to be pretty, pretty general for everyone telling the story of what God has done for you. So I encourage you to be able to uh, think about that and trust God to lead you in situations to be able to be used by Him uh, to, to, to bring the good news, let people know what God has done for you. As we sing these last two songs, and, and you need to come pray, or you just need to uh, sing along, or maybe just listen to the words. Uh, let the Holy Spirit just continue to speak to your heart about all these different things. <laughs>